Aloha, Covenant College, and welcome back. You may not know, but I was home in Hawaii over break, and I tried my best to bring the warm weather back with me. 60s is about as best as I can do at this time of year, but you can thank me later for that. <laughs> I, was, I was really going to say, I had not heard this said publicly, um, that the reason that I am doing the first chapel talk of the semester is that they couldn't think of a better way to kind of wake you guys up and get you going than to talk about sex and gender and art in chapel because that sounds super exciting. But here's the thing, guys. I am here to deliver. I am ready for this. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to close your eyes. Oof. And I want you to imagine the most powerful person in the world. This is someone who controls huge armies, who has enormous private wealth, a personal food taster, and whose word is essentially law. You got it? Okay, you can open your eyes. Is this who you were thinking of? <laughs> right? Let me introduce you to Louis XIV, arguably one of the most powerful people in the world in the 1700s. He's a ruler that claimed divine right, who ushered in a golden age of French art and literature, who annexed key territories to the growing French empire, and who established France as a dominant force in Europe. And it was important to Louis in his waning years, his geriatric years, to record himself as an absolute monarch. So, yeah, this is what a man's man looks like. He's large and in charge with this huge, like, metal hair, um, these <laughs> elaborately embroidered jacket, really big cape, skin-tight pants, and high-heeled shoes. And I'm pretty sure that this painting is causing a little bit of cognitive dissonance for you right now. Maybe some of you are scoffing a little bit. And it's precisely because we have that reaction that this painting is worth talking about. So today, I want to talk to you about three things art history has taught me about sex and gender. I'm not replacing scripture with my discipline when I do this, but I am trusting that since all knowledge is held together in Christ, I might find truthful insights made evident in art historical scholarship. I hold what I find up to scripture, and I ask the Holy Spirit to give discernment and humility. It's an iterative, integrative process, and oftentimes it's messy, and it's always very humbling. Sometimes this means rejecting an idea that's popular in the academy because I can't reconcile it with what the wisdom of our tradition and my conscience tells me. But sometimes it means pausing and thoughtfully considering how my beliefs um, about things that I take as natural about sex and gender have in fact been shaped by culture rather than scripture. To be honest, this kind of discussion is best done in the context of a trusting relationship. So like Dr. Hecker last semester, let me encourage you to take a class with me or come to my office for tea. I really do welcome opportunities to talk thoughtfully with students about these difficult topics. Also, Believe it or not, I'm going to give this whole talk today without showing you any naked people. <laughs> I know, I'm really <laughs> impressed with myself. Art in the West has a reputation for being all about flesh and beauty and desire, 
but I would argue that it is the less titillating, more public images that have had an especially powerful impact on how we think about and act on gender. We tend to think of sex and gender as being very private, very personal things, and yet it is precisely their public visibility and legibility that has made them such powerful organizing categories for our experience in the world. So first, let's talk about sex, and here I mean biological differences, and art. In particular, does the sex of the artist determine what his or her artwork looks like? Is there essentially male or female art? So look at this painting. What do we see? I see a young woman dressed in white, seated in an austere interior space. A drawing board rests on her lap, and she gazes towards us as if we are the subject of her observation. She's haloed by light pouring into the room through a window behind her, and through that window, we can just catch a glimpse of a young couple in the distance leaning against a railing in conversation. Now, this painting is part of the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, one of the most prestigious art institutions in the world. And when the museum acquired this painting, when they bought the painting in 1917, they believed that they were buying a painting by Jacques-Louis David, France's foremost painter from 1780s to 1816. David was known for painting with uh, a classical sensibility, with rational clarity. In 1945, an art historian referred to this painting as, quote, distinguished by the directness and simple approach of the neoclassic style. And the museum itself called this painting an exemplary of the austere taste of the time. But in 1951, another art historian, Charles Sterling, questioned the attribution of this painting. He argued that this painting could not be by the great Jacques-Louis David because, quote, the treatment of the skin and fabric is gentle, and the articulation lacks correctness. He concluded, it's poetry literary rather than plastic, it's very evident charms and cleverly concealed weaknesses, it's ensemble made up of a thousand subtle artifices all seem to reveal the feminine spirit. He claimed that this simply could not have been painted by David, and it must instead be the work of a lesser-known female artist from the period, perhaps one taught by the famous master. Now, there's actually something pretty complex going on here. This isn't simply a case of a connoisseur making a judgment. Sterling, like many other historians of that moment, defaulted to a form of biological determinism. That is, he believed that the sex of the artist necessarily expressed itself in his or her work. The idea is that you could look at an artwork, regardless of time period or culture, and you should be able to tell that it was made by a man or by a woman. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, differential control of a paintbrush was not one of the things that Dr. Nelson talked about in his chapel talk last semester. And if you're wondering if it's that males and females have different brains and sense perception, well, I'm just going to leave that to Dr. Yu to talk about later this semester. Shout out to your liberal arts education, guys. It's all connected. 
And even better, the various disciplines at the college, we need each other in order to faithfully grapple with complex issues like sex and gender. Okay, but when we pay attention to the language that Sterling uses to make his argument for reattribution, we might start to realize that what he's really saying here is that certain visual characteristics align with one gender rather than the other. That is, Sterling observes a gentleness in how the skin and fabric are rendered. But for him, gentleness is gendered. It's an attribute that aligns with his sociocultural understanding of womanhood or femininity rather than manhood or masculinity. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. When art historians believed that the painting was by David, they praised it as austere and direct, attributes that were associated with the masculine. But as Sterling questions that attribution and argues that the painting is actually by a woman, he sees and describes the painting differently. And really, how he describes the painting tells us a whole lot more about what he thinks about women than what he thinks about the painting itself. I mean, according to Sterling, women are inherently charming. They use artifice to conceal their weakness. I hope we can all agree here that such an attitude does not reflect a robust view of the equal dignity of all image bearers. Can I get like a tiny amen? amen. Thank you. This is just one example, but it's not unusual in art history's past. Most art historians today, though, would acknowledge that a sculpture or a painting by a woman is much more likely to be similar to that of her male contemporaries than that of another woman from another time period or culture. So a painting by Artemisia Gentileschi is more likely to look like a 17th century Caravaggio than a 19th century Bert Morisot. And a sculpture by Edmonia Lewis, a Native American black female sculptor, is more likely to look like one by her white male contemporary, Hiram Powers, than 20th century female sculptor, Louise Bourgeois. There's not some secret female trace that runs through all work by women any more than there is a secret male trace that connects all work made by men. So let me be clear, an artist's sex does not indelibly shape what his or her work looks like, but it often does shape how their work is perceived by others. While we're at it, let's acknowledge something similar about sexuality and race or ethnicity. An artist's sexuality, race, or ethnicity does not indelibly determine what their artwork looks like, but it often does shape how their work is seen by others. And that in and of itself isn't wrong. But when we reduce an artist down to a single facet of his or her identity, or when we apply narrow culturally created notions of gender to their art, we're disregarding some of the marvelous complexity of what it means to be an embodied image bearer. And this leads helpfully to my second point. Artworks do not simply reflect the reality of gender. They also shape our expectations of gender norms. We have a tendency to think of artworks as mirrors, either a mirror of the artist's psychology or a mirror of the artist's worldview. So for example, we might think of a Dutch Golden Age painting with its beautiful detail and all its lush color 
um, as a reflection, an illustration of a Calvinist worldview that sees God in all areas of life. That's not entirely wrong, but that's a really limited way of understanding how art functions in the world. Images are not just cultural mirrors. I often talk about our archive, the Google image search that you run in your head. You have an internal cataloging system, a personal search engine for strong leader or modern bride or handsome man. And while your results may be primarily shaped by pop culture images or things you've seen on social media, all of those images are in turn connected to much older artworks. And those artworks, like the images you double tap on your phones, played a social role. They weren't simply there to be pretty or to hang in museums. So take this painting by the Florentine Renaissance artist Botticelli, for example. Understood as a mirror of culture, we might interpret it as an allegory of springtime fertility, but also a reflection of emerging humanist values that privilege classical sources and rationality. Here, the rational could be expressed visually as a preference for linear clarity over color. Thus, Botticelli's painting becomes an illustration of a Florentine worldview, or if you really wanted to push it, a Neoplatonic, uh, notions of Neoplatonic ideals. What this interpretation misses, however, is the material and social reality of the painting. Through careful archival research, art historian Webster Smith determined that this painting originally hung in the home of the powerful banker Lorenzo di Pier Francesco de' Medici in Florence, Italy. In fact, it was installed above a kind of sofa daybed in a room just adjacent to the bridal chamber. Another art historian, Lillian Zerpolo, later argued that we should take the implications of this location really seriously. The painting was hung there, along with a Madonna and child, in order to supply Pier Francesco's bride with lessons on chastity, submission, and procreation. Given this context, our interpretation of the painting might take on a different inflection. The three dancing women on the left-hand side of the painting are not simply a representation of the mythological three graces. Instead, with their measured, elegant gestures and unemotional expressions, they serve as a model of the ideal Renaissance woman. This kind of lady is described in 15th century manuals like on wifely duties. It's not just a pretty story being illustrated here. It's a how-to on how to be an acceptable woman. This is made even more clear, and I think more ominous, in the encounter incurring on the far right of the painting. Here we see Zephyrus, the god of the west wind, chasing the wood nymph Chloris. According to the scene in Ovid's Fasti, on which this is based, Zephyrus catches and violates Chloris, who becomes pregnant. Zephyrus then marries her, and as a kind of reward, she gets to become Flora, goddess of flowers and spring. In Botticelli's rendering, Chloris is hunched over and almost animal-like as she runs from Zephyrus. A garden of flowers emerges from her mouth, joining an abundance of blossoms cradled against the womb of the upright, poised, beautiful Flora. 
Botticelli links the two women together so that we understand that we are witnessing a before and after transformation. After her submission and marriage, the clumsy, awkward, bestial chorus becomes the embodiment of Renaissance femininity in flora, refined, composed, and above all, fertile. I want us for a moment to think about Pier Francesco and his bride. Imagine her lived experience with this painting, not in a sterile museum with bright lights and lots of tourists holding up their iPads, but in her private quarters every single day. It's always there, a hovering reminder that to be a real woman, to be a desirable woman, she must look a certain way, control her emotions, surrender herself entirely to her husband, and bear his children. And imagine his lived experience with this painting. It inhabited his life every day, teaching this young, ambitious man who's just trying to carve out a place for himself in a very powerful family that his own worth depended on him dominating and impregnating his bride. Friends, artworks and images are not just mirrors of culture. They shape cultural expectations of what is beautiful, desirable, and appropriate for men and women to be. And it doesn't just hurt women. It hurts all image bearers. Images can naturalize ungodly, damaging beliefs about our gender, encouraging us to accept and even elevate cultural norms rather than true biblical teaching about obedience and identity. And we also can't disentangle gender from race here. As complex embodied image bearers, our experiences of gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, and the like are all inflected by each other. So we need to be careful when we say something like, men in the 19th century were so much more self-reliant, when what we really mean is Euro-American men, and even more specifically, Euro-American men in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Because think for a moment about the experience of black American men in the 19th century. 19th century American visual culture offered extremely limited varieties of black masculinity. Black men were depicted as animal-like brutes to be feared, childlike, happy-go-lucky entertainers that just needed a firm hand, or at best, docile, subservient victims who needed to be freed by benevolent whites. And guys, this is in the North. This isn't just in the South. In the wake of emancipation, there were no visual or conceptual categories for an active, self-possessed black man who is not a threat, entertainment, or a charity case. Black masculinity in the United States has and continues to be dangerously circumscribed by a limited set of visual tropes. If we recognize that artworks help create cultural norms of gender and race, then we can understand more fully the importance of complex, varied, and repeated representations of men, particularly men of color. So yes, give me more Black Panther. Give me more Crazy Rich Asians. Show me more Black and Brown and Asian brothers and sisters as complicated, fully human characters, not just sidekicks or stereotypes. This matters. Finally, our ideas of masculinity and femininity, manness and womanness, gender, have changed over time. This might seem pretty intuitive. After all, 
a woman can wear pants now, and we still identify her as a woman. But let's go back to this portrait of Louis XIV. In 1701, Louis was 63 years old. I love that. You may giggle at this portrait now. Like, wow, Louis, do you really need all of that cape? <laughs> all of the cape. And how have you not gone viral yet in the hashtag leggings or not pants conversation? But what we're missing as 21st century viewers is that to viewers in the early 1700s, Louis looks like a boss man. He is the equivalent of our perfectly tailored power suit and handmade wingtips from Italy. Don't believe me? Let's talk for a moment about Louis' shoes. <laughs> These amazing high-heeled, red-soled, crystal-buckled shoes. Powerful men in Western Europe initially adopted high-heeled shoes because they communicated aggressive, virile masculinity. <laughs> Want to know why? <laughs> because the Persian cavalry, then the largest in the world, had escorted a diplomatic mission from the Shah to Western Europe in 1599, and the cavalry all wore heeled shoes when riding horses because it made them more stable in the stirrups. <laughs> but after this visit, European aristocrats became enamored with all things Persian. Men began wearing Persian-inspired high-heeled shoes, not to ride in, but to give themselves a kind of macho cachet. By the time this portrait of Louis is painted, the king has issued a verdict that only members of his court could wear red-heeled shoes like his. So the very shoe that today we associate with feminine sexuality or frivolity or impracticality was, by the late 17th century, a way of marking the most powerful, most manly of men. Now, women had also been wearing high-heeled shoes in the 17th century, but they did so in order to play with masculinity. In the 1630s, French women were cutting their hair, adding military embellishments to their dresses, and, yeah, wearing high heels to act more like men. <laughs> Perhaps hilariously to us, Louis XVI's son and grandson, that's Louis XV and XVI, both reacted against the Sun King's highly controlled power ideology and aesthetic, which they saw as being too dark and somber. Under their rules, art and fashion became lighter and more playful, though to our contemporary eyes, the attire is maybe just as girly as that of their predecessor. But all of this shifts with Enlightenment thought. This ascending intellectual movement placed a priority on science, rationality, and the rights of the individual to better himself. Philosophers questioned the authority of the aristocracy and the total, mo total monarchy. And while thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Denis Diderot questioned the validity of a political system, they also attacked visible markers or codes of that system. In, that, in this case, it means condemning the stylings of the French court and paintings that decades earlier had been understood as signs of cultural and political power were now derided as soft, decorative, artificial, and meaningless, all attributes associated with women. As the 18th century ended, visible codes of gender underwent a radical transformation. 
Men aligning themselves with Enlightenment ideals of the French Revolution began dressing in simpler shirts and jackets. Pastel colors were replaced with dark ones, no embroidery, no ruffles, no big sleeves. The very markers of masculinity from 40 years ago were now mocked as diametrically opposed to manliness. They were considered signs of weakness and, yes, femininity. This certainly isn't the only time that gender codes underwent a profound shift in Western history. In fact, it's worth noting that efforts to codify gender in very stark binaries tend to occur at moments of social crisis or cultural uncertainty. We see this following the American Civil War, at the turn of the 20th century, after World War II, and so on. Now, I get that this can be really unsettling to us. To say that standards of manness and womanness have changed or even inverted over time? Yikes. But you know what? It's only fundamentally destabilizing if we're using rules about gender as a crutch, a support for our own anxieties. When it seems like too much is changing or when we feel like our sense of stability is being threatened, we want to hold tight to something that feels natural. These historical examples can help us recognize how today we might use our understanding of masculinity or femininity as a weapon, a means of policing boundaries. Non-Christians and Christians have been guilty of this. Some of you have been hurt so very badly by other Christians' use of gender as a bludgeon. And I'm so sorry. That's not how it should be. And some of you have in fear and pride been the one to name call, cat call, diminish, and dismiss. And I'm sorry for you, too, because in doing so, you are missing out on understanding more fully the very nature of our triune God. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them male and female and gave them the joint commission to fill the earth and subdue it. The diversity of humanity is somehow necessary for fully imaging the nature of God. Art history has helped me see that the artist's sex is not secretly coded into his or her work, nor does their work merely reflect the culture around them. These images might encourage us to see certain expectations of masculinity and femininity as part of the created order when, in fact, they are human constructions that can change over time. But rather than freaking out, let us be heartened that loving as Christ loves, that becoming more like our Savior through the work of the Holy Spirit, will inevitably result in us becoming more faithful men and women. And in doing so, we fulfill the important but still largely mysterious reason that the triune God creates humankind according to their image and likeness. We need each other to understand our God more fully. Let us not let unexamined images teach us lies about our worth or purpose. Thank you.